studying in the book of Philippians, and if you were here last week, um, we learned that joy, which characterizes this book, he, Paul uses this word in, in the book of Philippians more than any other word, um, pardon me, more than any other letter, he speaks of joy to this community. Um, joy is like children expressing themselves in one direction or another, and just having them present is joy. Um, um, but joy is not something that is, is within our grasp or something we manufacture. It is God's gift to us in every way. <laughs> kind of like Christmas Eve. Um, full of anticipation, but not necessarily for the sermon. Um, Today I want to talk about how do we experience joy in the midst of unwelcome circumstances, when things are not going the way we want them to, far from that, not even anything we would choose on our own, those circumstances that overtake us and overwhelm us. How do we know that underlying sense of God's presence, God's peace, God's joy in the midst of that? So this is why... Paul has written to the church, one of the reasons why he's written to this church in Philippi. Um, they've learned of his imprisonment. Here their founding pastor and teacher has been arrested, and it's serious. They don't know what the outcome is going to be. There's a possibility he may not, um, he may be put to death, and that has them concerned. They've also sent one of their leaders. In those days when when you were imprisoned, it's not like here where um, you, get, you still get three meals a day, you, you get mail, you get taken care of. Um, in those days, you were on your own for your own food, your own welfare, your own care. And yet, uh, Rome wasn't going to provide that, so it was up to your family and your friends to do that. So the Philippian church has always been this has this bond with Paul that wherever he is, they've sent people there to send word to him. We're praying for you. We encourage you. And they typically send a gift. They have done this repeatedly. They did it when he was in Corinth. Uh, they sent money uh, with him back to Jerusalem when the, they had learned that the Jerusalem church was suffering a famine. And now they've sent, um, they've sent uh, some money probably to Rome where Paul is in where we think Paul was in prison and and along with their messenger um, one of their leaders of their church Epaphroditus is has delivered this to Paul but he's become ill on the way and so now they've learned that not only is Paul in great distress but one of their leaders has um, has taken ill and they're not sure what's happened to him and so their anxiety has compounded. And Paul's writing back to them and saying, look, I know that you feel burdened for me and for Epaphroditus, but be encouraged. This is not a cause for concern or sadness. It is rather one of unexpected joy. And then in essence, he says, now let me explain what I mean by that. So the first thing he said, he's going to say two primary things. The first thing he's going to say is, you know, I am, I am a, an ambassador of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I have been appointed by Christ to deliver this message, especially to people 
of non-Jewish um, origin and Gentile. And, and God has appointed me as an apostle to the Gentiles, and I'm the one who's advancing that message and that gospel. Um, and so you're probably thinking, if I've been arrested, then the message and the proclamation of that message has been arrested as well. And he basically says to them, that's not true. So what my captors intended by putting me in jail has actually had the opposite effect. And he says, you can see this in three ways. Number one, the, the guards that watch over me, so we think he's in there under house arrest, and they're on some kind of a shift basis, the imperial guards. These were the bodyguards of the emperor. He's, that's how serious this, they have taken Paul's imprisonment. So they have um, this whole contingent. They think there was 10,000 um, of them. Um, <laughs> not all of them are in Rome, but... So, so they are taking turns watching over Paul. And every time one of them comes, he tells them about Jesus. And so now they know why he's there, and it's spreading throughout their barracks, too. When they go back, they're going, wow, that Paul guy, he never stops talking about Jesus. And some guy goes, who's Jesus? He goes, well, let me tell you. And so Paul's saying, you think that that stopped the message of the gospel? It's actually spread even more. Um, here's how the message translation, and I strongly recommend, if you're following along in this series, uh, to look the message version up online. It, it helps make things so clear. He says, all the soldiers here and everyone else too found out that I'm in jail because of the Messiah, and that piqued their curiosity. And now they've all learned about Jesus. The second thing he says that has advanced the gospel is you would think that if I'm the messenger of the gospel, if I'm put in prison, then everyone else in Rome who attends uh, a house church or who identifies with as a Christian, you would think they would be afraid, right? Because why would I want to speak out about my faith if, if the leader of our if of our uh, mission has been arrested, then I don't want to be arrested. But just the opposite has happened. It actually has bolstered their faith, and with more courage and less fear, they're telling their neighbors and their friends about Jesus. And Paul says, isn't that amazing? So he's telling the Philippians, you think this is to, to the demise of advancing the gospel. It's actually worked the opposite direction. And then finally, he says this third thing. There are preachers, local preachers, who have stepped it up as well. And then he goes, you know, some of them, they do it because they're, they're connected to me and they, and they care about me. And out of love, they're doing it. But there's some others that are doing it for some ulterior motives. And, and he says, but nevertheless, that word is being proclaimed. Um, now what he does is he starts to speculate a little bit more about that. And perhaps you've encountered people who sometimes will say, you know, when you look at the church in America and you look at the Christian church in general, it, it doesn't fulfill its message. Its message is that we are made one in Jesus Christ. And yet, look how many denominations and peculiar particular people there are that call themselves Christian. The peculiar ones aren't Presbyterians, by the way. They're all the others. Um, um, 
so we all have this tendency to to see someone different than ourselves and and we like our own particular version and brand and style and all that kind of thing and and this evidence of this fractured church as a whole is evidence that Christian message is not as true as we would like it to be or think it is. And that's a, that's a horrible indictment on the church. Um, and some Christians have even gone to say, you know, it's, it wasn't like that in the early church. The early church, they were united and they cared for one another and they were, they were cohesive. Well, I would say, read what Paul says in Philippians. He indicates that in his day, there were faction and rival groups who were vying for attention. It's part of our built-in personality that we're like this. Again, listen to how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this portion of Paul's letter. He says this, It's true some here preach Christ because of because with me out of the way, they think they'll step into the spotlight. Can you turn that one on a little stronger? This one right here. I don't know which one it is. Okay, wherever the spotlight is, maybe it's over here. They, they think they'll be in the spotlight, all right? Um, others do it um, with the best heart in the world. There it is. There it is. Okay, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> others do it with a little bit more modesty and with motivated by pure love, knowing that, that I, Paul, am here defending the message, and they want to be of help to me. Others, now that I'm out of the way, um, are merely greedy, and they're hoping to get something out of it for themselves, and their motives are bad. They see me as their competition, and so the worse it goes for me, the better they think for them. So how am I to respond to this? And Paul's really asking that question for the Philippians to also ask that question of themselves. How do we respond when someone behaves like that? And he said, I've decided I really don't care about their motives, whether mixed, bad, or indifferent. Every time one of them opens his mouth, Christ is proclaimed. And so I'm going to cheer them on. Well, I don't know if it was because he was in prison and he couldn't say anything or do anything differently or because Paul was just incredibly gracious at this point in his life, but I'm not like that. You all know that there are different preaching styles. There are church branding. Churches come across with their own marketing of who they are and how they come across. And there are demonstrations of the gospel by some individuals that leave me cold and if not embarrassed outright. I'm, a, I'm embarrassed to consider that that is of Christ. I want to say I, I want nothing to do with that. Upon encountering them, I can be critical. I can distance myself and disassociate from them altogether as if I'm saying to that that's not an authentic representation of the gospel. Now, the only problem when you say that is you have to complete the sentence, but I am. Whoa, okay, that's a bold claim. That calls for some soul searching. So I'm reminded of this famous line of Mother Teresa. Um, she was asked her opinion of American televangelists, and this was more like in the 70s and 80s when some of their actions had led to some great change. 
uh, about them and about the church in general. And she could not ignore um, who they were or make them go away any more than she could the people who had been abandoned on the streets of Calcutta, the people who were left to die, and she would not let them die alone. And she would scoop them up and bring them back to the mission and care for them and show them the love of Christ and the dignity of what it means uh, to be human. And she said of both them and of these televangelists, they are Christ to me in a very distressing respect. In other words, that's not who I think of Christ to be, but nevertheless, I must see them that way. We even sang that earlier of, of seeing in, or we said it in that confession, of seeing in others, the, seeing the eyes, through the eyes of Christ and seeing how other people matter to God. And so what this reminds me is, uh, I may not like the way certain people speak for Jesus. I may question their motives and their methods, but I must not disparage them nor their efforts. They are Christ to me. Paul teaches us to see from another perspective. Don't just look at any given situation and assess it with your own value system. Instead, learn to see it the way God might see it. So it's similar to, remember the story of Joseph, whose brothers, he behaved in such a way that his brothers did not consider him a member of the family. Remember, he was the favored one. He was given uh, the colorful coat. He was, he kind of stood out in the family, and he was the next to the youngest. And so who are you to behave like that in front of brothers who you should be honoring and valuing? So to teach him a lesson, they sold him into slavery. And wouldn't you? Um, they, they wanted to get rid of him so that, so that um, they didn't have to put up with him anymore. And then he goes down to Egypt, and you sort of know the story. He, at first, things go from bad to worse, but then eventually God, God uh, uses him. He interprets a dream, and Pharaoh then honors him and gives him a position of great influence and power, second in command. And it's while he's in that position that they learn that there's a famine in Israel, and his family come to Egypt for help. And he, with much love and grace, recognizes his brothers and, of course, helps out his family. But they're fearful that he's going to take revenge. And in, and in Genesis 50, 20, we get this line from Joseph. It's very much what Paul's saying. And, and some people have called it 50, 20 vision because of it's located in chapter 50, verse 20. He says, what you intended for evil... God has turned into good. So any given situation, we, we need to be open to the fact that God can work in that situation. We need to be open to seeing it from another vantage point. Whatever the aim or ambition of these rival preachers, Paul sees a reason to rejoice rather than a cause of distress and consternation. You know someone else who's learned to see things from a different perspective is Oscar Munoz. You're probably going, who's that? The CEO of United Airlines. You know, he at first he backed 
he backed his employees, and they were following protocols. They only did what they were taught to do. So he defended their actions when, when they had four passengers removed from an overbooked flight originating out of Chicago. But the public fallout and the video camera of the mistreatment of one of those passengers um, caused Munoz to see the episode from the perspective of the customer. He had to, um, or he would have been fired. Um, and when you view it from the perspective of the customer, customer, you go, oh my goodness. And that's exactly what he said. We were wrong. And that they owed not only that customer, but all those passengers a profound apology. And he said, we will work to make their actions right going forward. You see, when you see it from a different point of view, you, you, suddenly, you suddenly have a cause that's greater than the one you started with. And in Paul's case, it's a cause for joy. And now at this point, he transitions to talk about his own circumstances and what it means for him. Earlier, he had told the Philippians that he wanted them he was praying that they would learn how to discern what is best. When in the face of something that, that was unwelcome and unlikable, how to discern what's the best choice in such a situation. And so now he's going to actually walk them through his own personal example of discerning what is best in his situation. And he thinks in terms of what would be best for him, what would be best for the Philippians, and ultimately what is best for Christ. He tells us his thought processes of how he's come to assess his situation, that he doesn't know the outcome of his imprisonment and trial. It could lead to his death. It could lead to his release. But regardless, he's convinced he will be vindicated. So that doesn't necessarily mean that he's, he's going to be released from prison, but that he will be vindicated before God, that God's will and purpose can be trusted for, for salvation and ultimately his well-being, no matter what happens. And when he speculates whether he might live or die, he understands both options to his own personal advantage. And then he uses this incredible statement, for me to live is Christ. That's my reason for being here. And to die is gain because I will be with Christ then as well. So either way, I win. At the pastor's conference I've attended this past week at, at Mount Hermon in the Santa Cruz uh, Hills of, um, it's, it's the um, Redwood Grove uh, outside of Felton, just spectacular setting. Um, there was a speaker. One of our two speakers was Ann Zaki. Uh, she's the assistant professor of practical theology at the Evangelical Seminary in Cairo, Egypt. She's the only female out of 11 professors um, to be on that faculty. And not only was she encouraging us personally as pastors, but she also told us of, of what it was like to be in Cairo and in Egypt at following the Palm Sunday bombings of two Coptic churches, which killed 45 Christians. 
And she said when government officials told church leaders that out of their own safety and for concern of their safety, they should not hold services next week. Imagine telling a pastor you shouldn't hold Easter worship. Um, I would say, what about the offering? And they're like, no, I wouldn't say that. I would say it's the most important celebration in a Christian's life and in a Christian year, we are going to worship. But here's what this church leader replied. No, we will gather on Easter because what we have, they cannot take away from us. And what they want, our lives, we've already laid down. Whoa. I heard that and I thought, oh my goodness. Anytime I've been overseas or out of the country and you meet Christians from other parts of the world, you realize how much they do church and they do faith out of conviction and we do it out of convenience. We, we do our faith out of convenience, but they do it as a life and death matter. And it makes me wonder, do we, when faced with a difficult situation, do, are, do we see ourselves in God's hands or do we prefer to see it that God's in ours? Do our prayers reflect the fact that, God, what are you doing? I need you to, to act on my behalf and take care of this. Things aren't going the way I want them to. Or do we say, Lord, I'm your servant, whatever it is you have planned for me. I want to be faithful. Paul then says something rather startling. This is the last point I will make. He says, I don't, when I, when I look at the outcome, I'm not sure which I'll choose. As if Paul is determining the end result. Um, that's not really what he's saying. He's saying, when I consider both options, if it were up to me, I don't know which of them I would choose or which I would prefer. And that le- leads me to think, when faced with obstacles and challenges and disappointments, we always have a choice. It's how we will respond. That's our choice. When something doesn't go our way or it's not as resolved as quickly as we might like, I often hear myself say, it's not fair, why me? As if I'm entitled to something better than this. Or I wonder, why is this happening? What have I done that has brought this on? Circumstances do not determine who we are, but how we respond to them does. We always have a choice. Whether or not we know joy and experience joy is a choice. That doesn't mean it's ever easy or that it doesn't take time to get to that place. But as Paul mentions, there are two forms of support to always encourage us in that choice. The first is that God has left us the Holy Spirit. So God's very presence is with us to encourage and support us. And then the other is When you have friends in the faith, then they're going to pray for you at such times, and you know that they will be in it with you. In other places, Paul had to write to the churches and say, pray for me. He said to the Corinthians, to the Romans, to the Thessalonians, please pray for me. But to the Philippians, he says, I know you're praying for me. 
he knew that their attention and their heart and their focus was on him. Do you have friends like that? Do you have people that you, when you're in trouble, they're going to be there for you. They're going to take the initiative and they're going to tell you, I'm praying for you. Not a day goes by that I don't mention you in my prayers. It makes all the difference of whether in such circumstances you can know joy or not. May it be so.